All right, Nick, so rank lists just went in this week. So hopefully this means that we'll both be matching into MFM and we'll both be learning how to ultrasound. Fingers crossed. But in our back pockets, regardless of whether we match or not, but hopefully we do, we'll be better sonographers by using the OBG's Project's second trimester ultrasound atlas. The OBG Project is an amazing resource online that you can go to to look up the latest guidelines. There's also a subscription process known as the OBG First, where you can bookmark articles that you enjoy and want to go back to and also use the second trimester ultrasound atlas. If you want to find out more about the OBG project, or if you want to get OBG first for absolutely free for chief residents only, head on over to www.creugsovercoffee.com, look in the sidebar and get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creugs Over Coffee. Coffee. So today we're going to talk about preventing infections after GYN surgery and thanks to Taylor DiGiulio at Beaumont OBGYN in Detroit for the episode idea. Faye, what are our learning objectives for the day? Our learning objectives for this episode are, one, to review the basics of surgical site infection, or SSI, including the pathophysiology, the microbiology, and the wound classifications. We'll also review preoperative and perioperative preventative measures for reducing SSI. And finally, we'll discuss intraoperative measures to reduce SSI, focusing primarily on GYN surgeries and when antibiotics are indicated. All right, Nick, so let's start from the beginning. Talk to me a little bit more about surgical site infection. Why do we care? Yeah, so the basics really that SSI is considered the most common complication after GYN surgery. Many people may have heard of the NISQIP program or the NISQIP database that stands for the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program. Superficial skin infections, according to NISQIP data, complicate approximately 2.5% of abdominal hysterectomies and about a half percent of laparoscopic hysterectomies. Deep incisional or organ space infections complicate about somewhere between a half and 1.2% of hysterectomies by any route. Um, and there's a number of things that contribute to that risk and ultimately the morbidity of infectious complications that we're going to review today. Um, but we mentioned a little bit of like superficial versus deep space versus organ space. These are actually to my surprise, like very, very specific terms um, that the CDC uses to track. So let's start off, I guess, with a superficial incisional infection. What is that defined as? A superficial incisional infection is one that occurs within 30 days postoperatively and involves only the skin or subcutaneous tissue of the incision, and the patient has at least one of the following. One, purulent drainage from the superficial incision. Two, organisms isolated from an aseptically obtained culture of fluid or tissue from the superficial incision. Three, at least one of the following signs or symptoms of infection, including pain or tenderness, localized swelling, redness, heat, and superficial incision is deliberately opened by a surgeon and is culture positive or not cultured. And finally, a diagnosis of superficial incisional surgical site by a surgeon or attending physician. So what about deep incisional infections, Nick? What are those? Yeah, so you'll kind of notice a pattern here in the way that these are defined. So deep incisional, again, is one that occurs within 30 days after an operative procedure if there's not an implant left in place, or within a year if there is an implant left in place and the infection appears to be related to the operative procedure. 
involves deep soft tissues such as the fascia and muscle layers of the incision, and the patient has, again, one of the following that Faye just mentioned, either purulent drainage from the deep incision but not from the organ space component deeper, or a deep incision that spontaneously dehisses or is deliberately opened by a surgeon is culture positive. And finally, if the patient has one of those symptoms, including fever, localized pain or tenderness, or an abscess um, involving the deep incision. Finally, you can also just diagnose it based on clinical diagnosis by a physician. So again, all of these things fall into that type of category. But with deep incisional, remember that it's 30 days after the surgery if no implant is in place or within one year if there is an implant, something like mesh. Faye, I guess the last thing is what about an organ or deep space infection? Yeah, so these infections, again, must meet the criteria of occurring within 30 days after the operative procedure if there's no implant or within one year if there is an implant involved. And it involves any part of the body other than the skin, fascia, or muscle layers that is opened or manipulated during a case. The other criteria is, again, what we talked about before, which is there's purulent drainage from a drain that is placed through a stab wound. There are organisms that are isolated. There's an abscess or other evidence of infection. And of course, if there's a diagnosis made by a surgeon or attending physician. Now that we've talked about kind of the three different spaces that you can have infection from, Nick, let's talk a little bit about how infections occur. Yeah, so I would think it'd like distill down really simply, right? Like bacteria get in there. But we do all these things prior to surgery to try and reduce the risk, which we're going to get into later on. Um, but you'd think like if we do all these things, why do infections still occur? There's a number of reasons that can contribute to a risk of postoperative infection, and that really depends on three things. The procedure itself, the site of the procedure, and then the preparation. Depending on the site, the number and virulence of contaminating bacteria at that site is the initial threat because you're going to make your incision there and then boom, you immediately open the space to the risk of infection. The use of foreign materials like mesh further increases that risk. And for GYN surgery, you know, the patient's skin and the vagina are probably the most common places for bacterial emergence. Um, but occasionally we can even encounter potential pathogens from the bowel. So when you start to think about you know, what organisms we might encounter that pose risks to us, you think a lot about skin flora like gram-positive cocci, including staphylococcus, um, but also fecal flora from around the vagina, perineum, and bowel, um, which primarily are anaerobic and gram-negative aerobes. Antibiotics can help augment these host defense systems against SSI, but antibiotics at the same time carry risks, ranging from routine side effects to things as serious as C. diff or an allergic reaction. So even though we've defined all of these risks at the outset, not every surgery needs antibiotics. And again, we're going to get into all of that a little bit later in this episode. So Faye, kind of as we think about you know, the risk of infection, and we started to talk a little bit about making that initial incision, we need to start to think about the wounds that we make. And there's actually a really nice classification system that I think will frame the rest of our discussion. Yeah, so there are four classes of surgical wound classification. So the first one is a class one wound which is a clean wound where there's an uninfected operative wound in which there's no inflammation and which you don't enter the respiratory, GI, genital, or urinary tracts. In addition, clean wounds are primarily closed and, if necessary, drained with closed drainage. Operative incisional wounds that follow non-penetrative or blunt trauma should be included in this category. What about class 2 wounds? 
Yeah, so class two wounds are called clean contaminated wounds. So these are operative wounds in which, again, respiratory, alimentary, genital, or urinary tracts are entered under a controlled condition and without any sort of unusual contamination like an infection that's pre-existing. Specifically, you know, for GYN surgeons in particular, operations that involve the appendix, the vagina are included in this category. And then for other types of surgeries, the biliary tracts, the oropharynx are also included in this. As long as there's no evidence of infection or a major break in technique, these types of surgeries will generally be classified as clean contaminated or class two. Let's move on now, Faye, to class three wounds. Yeah, so class three wounds are contaminated wounds. So this is where you have, you think about, you know, someone who has an accident, they cut themselves at home with their knife. Um, so this would be fresh accidental wounds. Also, if you're doing an operation in an otherwise clean field, but there's all of a sudden a break in sterile technique, for example, um, a gross spillage from the GI tract or things like that, or if there's necrotic tissue without evidence of purulent drainage, these are all included in this category. And our final class is class four, um, which fortunately we don't encounter that often in GYN surgery with these dirty or infected wounds. But theoretically, you could encounter them, for instance, in the case of like necrotizing fasciitis or a bowel perforation that's kind of been festering. Um, these are old traumatic wounds with retained divitalized tissues and involve either, an, again, an existing clinical infection or perforated viscera. The organisms causing post-operative infection in this case were present in the operative field prior to the surgery. Um, so yeah, that's the big thing to remember is that these bacteria were present prior to the surgery and thus the wound is dirty. I guess, Faye, when we think about GYN surgeries, where would we kind of place most of our stuff? As GYN surgeons, we actually have a very wide field of what we do. So we do things like laparoscopies, we do open cases, we do vaginal cases. So they all kind of fall into different categories. Most of our laparoscopies, so if you're thinking like salpingectomy and things like that, this would fall into the clean category. Hysterectomies, which is the most common GYN major surgery, actually falls into the clean contaminated category, which makes sense because you are entering the vaginal canal when you're taking out your cervix. If you have an accidental bowel injury or accidental vaginotomy or hysterotomy, this should be considered a contaminated wound. And finally, you could have a class 4 wound, which would be surgeries for things like bowel perforations or ruptured tubo ovarian abscesses. So Nick, we talked about the different types of wounds. The final set of risk factors for post-op infection are patient level. So let's talk about what are some things in our patient population that could make someone more at risk for infection. Yeah, so there are a number of things that we should really be looking for prior to taking somebody to the operative room or that we can counsel patients on before the OR. The first of these that we're going to talk a little bit about later is perioperative hyperglycemia, meaning a serum glucose greater than or equal to about 180 to 200 mg per deciliter. That's a big risk factor, and again, we'll talk more about that a little bit later. Other things can include smoking, obesity, or nutritional status. Um, and along with obesity, the depth of subcutaneous tissue greater than or equal to three centimeters. Other risk factors include things like a coexisting infection at another part of the body. So for example, if someone has a cellulitis um, in the arm before you go and operate on them or a urinary tract infection. Also things like vaginal colonization with microorganisms like group B strep or bacterial vaginosis. Um, 
and also ASA status or the American Society of Anesthesiologists physical status. Um, and finally, immunodeficiency or MRSA status. So within Practice Bulletin 195, which is kind of the reading that goes along with this podcast, ACOG has actually a list of a number of practice recommendations that can help to reduce your preoperative or perioperative risk of SSI. We're going to list some of those off here and also talk about our own experiences within our hospital. We'd love to hear from you guys about the kind of things that you do at your hospital to reduce these risks. The first, as we'd mentioned earlier, is to treat a remote infection. This one seems kind of obvious. If there's an infection going on somewhere else, like a skin infection or UTI, it's likely best to postpone surgery in favor of treating that infection, particularly if it's an elective case. The other one is to not shave the incisional site. And I think this is something that has come to light in the last uh, decade or so, because I do remember some of the midwives telling me that back in the 50s or 60s, what they would routinely do is shave women who Mm -hmm. were undergoing their vaginal delivery or having their C-section. But this is because shaving patients actually has been shown to cause the risk of infection by probably introducing a nidus for infection remote from surgery because you're causing microabrasions on the skin. So if the hair does need to be trimmed, it should be clipped and it should be done immediately preoperatively with electric clippers. The next, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, was the prevention of preoperative hyperglycemia. Um, And ACOG recommends a blood glucose target of less than 200 mg per deciliter for both non-diabetic and diabetic patients before proceeding with surgery. Remember that diabetes can be diagnosed with a random blood sugar of greater than 200, so even if you're near this level, that should probably be a cause for concern, um, particularly in somebody who may be unaware that they're diabetic or pre-diabetic. Good glycemic control ultimately is going to lead to less risk of SSI, and poor control conversely leads to more risk. Um, At our institution, we actually perform preoperative random blood sugars prior to major surgeries, and that's actually been shown to identify diabetes in our patients and ultimately prevent SSI. Next is to advise your patients to shower or bathe with full body soap at least the night before surgery. This seems pretty obvious and I always thought that it was because we were using these antiseptic soaps that are special to our offices. Like our offices use these um, pink chlorhexidine soaps. But it's actually surprising that there's no particular soap that is recommended over the other. So if you are in a place where you don't have chlorhexidine soap, you can have your patients just bathe with regular old Dove soap. Yeah, I think that one's really kind of surprising me, Faye, because like the trial that they described was like bathing versus not bathing. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know how you like randomize or select for that bathing versus not bathing. I'd hope to be in the bathing arm. Me too. Uh, <laughs> the next up is the alcohol-based skin prep, unless it's contraindicated. So in randomized trials, chlorhexidine alcohol combinations have actually been proven um, to be superior to povidine iodine for preoperative skin preparation. For mucosal sites such as the vagina where high alcohol concentrations can lead to significant irritation, um, you should still use either povidine iodine or a chlorhexidine soap solution that's either alcohol-free or has a lower alcohol concentration. And of course, as we know as surgeons, we should maintain appropriate aseptic technique, meaning you should wash your hands and, you know, not touch your face or touch the door or touch things that are not sterile. And your surgical technique actually does matter. Effective hemostasis while preserving vital blood supply, maintaining normal thermia, reducing operative time, 
handling the tissue gently, avoiding inadvertent injuries, using drains when appropriate, and of course eradicating dead space can all help to reduce risk of surgical site infection. Another one that we probably don't think about that much, particularly, I know we're talking about GYN surgery today, but no, in the context of like C-sections is minimizing operating room traffic. Think about that, like people walking in and out of the operating room, circulator has to run, go grab something from somewhere else, like that door opens and closes, open and closes. And what happens is that unfiltered air from outside the OR is able to come into the OR and now you've introduced potentially a risk of infection that way. Safety bundles that have included components to reduce the opening of OR doors have actually been shown to reduce SSI. And finally, since we are GYN surgeons, for hysterectomy, we should consider pre-op screening for bacterial vaginosis. So prior to routine use of antibiotic prophylaxis for hysterectomies, use of metronidazole in pre-op patients who screen positive for BEV has been shown to reduce SSI. These studies haven't been repeated with systematic antibiotic prophylaxis, but given the data, ACOG does state that screening is reasonable at the pre-op visit. So Nick, we've talked about all of the things that we can do for our patients to try and minimize their SSI. But what about when to use antibiotics? I always feel like, you know, our circulators are really good by telling us when we need to redose our antibiotics when we're in the operating room, who needs more antibiotics. What's really determining that? Yeah, so I think like, again, before we even get into like, what antibiotic do I choose? You're right, Faye, we should review kind of some of the things that we think about with antibiotic therapy. So kind of if you're going to consider using antibiotics, one thing that you should think about is obesity. You know, prophylactic dosing may need to be increased in obese patients because there's more tissue to distribute antibiotic across. So for instance, cefazolin should be given at two grams for patients who are less than 120 kilos or three grams for patients over 120 kilos. Additionally, weight-based dosing for certain antibiotics like vancomycin or genomycin should be considered. Faye, what about the length of the procedure? So this one makes sense to me, which is that there is a half-life of a drug, right? And so over a longer time period, it makes sense that the antibiotic may not be as effective. So for example, you should consider redosing at intervals that are equal to twice the half-life of the drug. And so for one of our favorite antibiotics that we use in GYN surgery, ANSEF or cefazolin, this is about four hours. So you should really reconsider redosing at that point if you're still operating. Final consideration we have here is that of large blood loss. There really, unfortunately, aren't a lot of good guidelines for this, but for similar reasons to what we've described above, it stands to reason that if you lose a lot of blood, you're going to reduce the tissue concentration of your antibiotic. ACOG references an older pharmacokinetic study in their recommendation regarding this that ultimately suggests redosing cefazolin at about 1,500 cc's of blood loss. Um, so certainly talk with your anesthesiologists, talk with your ID specialists about kind of in that context and with which drugs you should be considering redosing. I guess, Faye, one more thing before we get ultimately to the antibiotics, um, because, you know, we talked a lot about cefazolin uh, just now because that tends to be a big choice for GYN surgery. And that ultimately, at least in our shop, always begs the question about penicillin allergy. It is the bane of our existence. 
That's definitely true. So there's actually the Choosing Wisely campaign and the American Academy of Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology, which recommend a thorough evaluation of history of penicillin allergy prior to using a non-beta-lactam antibiotic. Over 90% of patients who claim they have a penicillin allergy actually can use penicillins or other beta-lactam safely. And you and I both know that there are tons of patients who come in who say that they're allergic to penicillin. You ask them what their reaction is, and they're like, oh, I don't know. My mom told me that I had mm-hmm. it once and I had some reaction as a child. Absolutely. Potentially, that is a person that could have some kind of beta-lactam. Ideally, IgE skin testing should be performed. That isn't always feasible when they first walk through the door and they're about to get their C-section. But there are validated questionnaires for separating patients into high-risk and low-risk groups for penicillin allergy, and this can inform us whether or not an acephalosporin is okay to give. Excellent. So Nick, I know we talked a lot about people who might not really be allergic to penicillin, but what about those people who really are allergic to penicillin? Like they've had a witnessed anaphylaxis reaction to getting penicillin. What am I supposed to give them in the OR? Yeah, so if your history is high risk or is definite anaphylaxis or something like Stevens-Johnson syndrome to penicillin, you know, you want to pick something different, obviously. ACOG ultimately recommends a combination of two antibiotics in this case. And so kind of to break it down, you're going to pick one of two, either clindamycin, 900 milligrams, or metronidazole, 500 milligrams, in combination with gentamicin, 5 milligrams per kg if you're going to do the weight-based dosing, or as trianam. So in our hospital, for instance, most of the time with hysterectomy patients, we're going to be administering clindamycin with gentamicin. Occasionally, we see clindamycin with as trianam as well. Um, you don't see a lot of the flagell in our hospital, but practice patterns are variable. All right, Nick. So I think we've finally gotten to the part in our talk where we can finally talk about what kind of antibiotic do we give for what type of GYN surgery. So let's go ahead and start off um, kind of with our most common major surgery, which is hysterectomy. Absolutely. What do we do? So regardless of route, again, as we talked about earlier, a hysterectomy is going to be a clean contaminated surgery because you're making an incision in to from a clean body space if you're going laparoscopically or into a contaminated lap body space if you're going vaginally and entering, you know, one or the other. Um, You're doing it in a controlled fashion, so this doesn't fall into the contaminated or the dirty wounds. Um, But in a clean contaminated setting, antibiotics are recommended. Single dose cefazolin is recommended as the prophylactic antibiotic of choice for hysterectomy based on over 30 prospective randomized controlled trials and four meta-analyses that show that prophylactic antibiotics reduce postoperative infectious morbidity and decrease the length of hospitalization in women undergoing hysterectomy. Faye, what if we're not taking out a uterus, though? So we're thinking about, like, you know, we're going to take an ectopic back to the OR or a torsion case, or, you know, maybe we just have a big amexal mass, so we're not going to take the uterus out. Yeah, so this is a great example of a class one wound or a clean wound. You're only going into the abdomen. You're not anticipating entering um, a contaminated space like the vagina or the bowel. So actually, antibiotic prophylaxis is not recommended for these patients. The Society for Gynecologic Surgeons uh, did a systematic review where they looked at antibiotic prophylaxis for clean abdominal surgery not involving entry entry into the vagina or intestines, and there was no reduction of infectious morbidity for patients undergoing laparoscopy. However, 
Antibiotic prophylaxis can be considered for patients undergoing a laparoscopy with a very high risk of conversion to laparotomy. So for example, a patient who is getting GYN oncology surgery and you anticipate that potentially the mass may be too big to be taken out of a, um, a laparoscopic port. All right, so let's get away from the land of oncology for a second, and let's actually enter the land of REI. What about all those, um, you know, HSGs and chromoperturbations and sonohists and things like that that they do? Yeah, so this one's interesting because we're not really making an incision, right? We're no. You know, either taking a look with a camera or we're, you know, we're doing something that's going to instill fluid into the uterine cavity and potentially there's spillage of that fluid via the tubal ostia and the fallopian tubes back into the abdomen. So theoretically we're going from the vagina, the cervix to the uterus and potentially introducing something. Um, but depending on the indication for the procedure and things, the antibiotic recommendations are a little bit different. So the risk of infection associated with hysterosalpingogram, chromotube perturbation is related to a patient's history of PID. If a patient is suspected to have had a history of PID or the fallopian tubes are noted to be abnormal at the time of hysterosalpingography, um, there is a recommendation to give antibiotics. Um, the recommendation in this case is doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice daily for five days. Um, and this is to reduce ultimately the risk of recurrent PID after hysterosalpingogram. However, for patients who are undergoing routine sonohysterography or routine hysteroscopy, antibiotics are not indicated. There really is very, very low risk of post-procedure infection in these cases, and this is based even on systematic reviews and randomized controlled trials. Faye, another kind of hysteroscopic procedure that we do is endometrial ablation, and this time we're inducing tissue necrosis, so maybe we should use antibiotics. Yeah, so actually antibiotic prophylaxis is not recommended. There is an, a Cochrane meta-analysis that compared endometrial ablation techniques like a balloon versus hydrothermal versus microwave. It, they found that the incidence of endometritis to be only 1.4 to 2%. The only randomized trials looking at antibiotic prophylaxis in women undergoing hysteroscopic endometrial ablation found no difference in infection. Um, Nick, what about some office procedures that we do? So what about like IUD insertions or endometrial biopsies or, you know, sometimes we even do MVAs in the office? Yeah, so kind of to start with IUDs and endometrial biopsies, you know, there are no recommendations for routine antibiotic prophylaxis. And actually, interestingly enough, the practice bulletin says that a literature search performed for the practice bulletin regarding antibiotic prophylaxis for endometrial biopsy found no estimates of infectious complications of endometrial biopsy. So they just presume the risk to be negligible, which I think is kind of interesting because, again, we're instrumenting that uterus and to find no risk of infection is interesting. However, in the case of uterine evacuation, for instance, with like a first or second trimester abortion, then the story changes again because actually now antibiotics are recommended. Um, Faye, tell, us, tell me a little bit more about antibiotics in this setting. So there have been meta-analyses of perioperative antibiotics to prevent infection in first trimester abortion. Um, and actually using antibiotics does reduce post-abortal infections by about 41%. Wow. 
Um, so there is a significant decrease in infections if you give them preoperative antibiotics. So therefore, antimicrobial prophylaxis should be administered to women who are undergoing uterine evacuation for early pregnancy loss. And also if they're having a DNE, for example, for second trimester abortion. Right now, the Society of Family Planning recommends a single or short course of doxycycline, which is started preoperatively. Usually in our hospital, we administer a single 200 milligram dose of doxycycline one hour before any type of uterine aspiration is performed. So now we're going to talk about urogynecology and in particular with this, you know, we're going to be putting in mesh. So like Dr. Woolrabbit said during our incontinence episodes, you no, know, we're putting mesh in people, the TV lawyers are coming after us, like maybe we should give antibiotics in this setting. And actually, the evidence for this is kind of poor. So there were two small randomized trials of antibiotic prophylaxis in women undergoing vaginal surgery without hysterectomy and concluded that there was insufficient information to guide decision-making. Um, additionally, case series of placement of mid-urethral sling meshes suggest the risk of infection in patients is pretty low overall. Um, and a single RCT was actually stopped early because of low infection rates in both arms. The kind of bottom line ultimately is that even though there's not evidence to necessarily say one way or the other you should give or not give antibiotics, antibiotic prophylaxis is reasonable because the vaginal epithelium is incised and so your operative wound here is technically clean contaminated. In our hospital, we do give a dose of cefazolin prior to mid-urethral sling placement. They, sometimes we leave catheters in people, and I think like our hospital has been pretty aggressive about you know, trying to get them out, but occasionally you got to leave them in. Do you give antibiotics for this? Yeah, so the evidence for this is not really clear. There are some studies that show that potentially if you give prophylactic antibiotics, you will decrease the rate of infection, and there's other that says that you may not. The Infectious Disease Society of America actually recommends against prophylactic antibiotic administration for short-term and long-term catheterization because there is some concern about antimicrobial resistance. Also, because most of these infections are mild and respond very easily to treatment, it's unclear how you balance this efficacy with concerns about resistance. So if someone does get an infection in their bladder, is it really that big of a deal that they now need to take macrobid for five days afterwards? There is limited evidence that supports using ciprofloxacin, 250 milligrams, from post-operative day two until catheter removal in surgical patients with bladder drainage for at least 24 hours post-operatively. Macrobid, however, may be a more appropriate choice in light of the FDA warnings about quinolones. The other two things that we can think about for urogyne are things like urodynamic studies and cystoscopy, and routine antibiotic prophylaxis is not recommended for either. Let's come back to the GYN world for a second, Nick. What about um, LEAP procedures or biopsies or ECCs? Yeah, so you know, again, in this case, we're excising something in the vagina, but you know, assuming that all goes well with the surgery, we're actually not entering a body cavity, right? Like, so this is like taking something off of the skin or in this case, off of the cervix. Um, there have been two randomized trials of antibiotic prophylaxis in women undergoing leaps. Unfortunately, both had significant limitations, but really there is no good evidence for reduction of infection um, in prophylaxis for these procedures. Kind of thinking similarly, sometimes with vulvectomy, what do we do with that, Faye? The role of antibiotic prophylaxis isn't really clear for vulvectomies. There's no prospective or randomized trials in this population 
though a retrospective review does report a 58% rate of wound infection after radical and modified vulvectomies performed for the treatment of vulvar cancer. Um, however, the administration of antibiotic prophylaxis wasn't found to prevent wound infection in these cases. So because there are microorganisms that can be present on the skin of the vulva, the procedure should be considered clean contaminated, and therefore you could consider giving a single dose of ANSEF. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of the antibiotics and GYN surgery podcast. So let's go ahead and summarize. All right, so we started off with the basics. Now, we talked a lot about definitions, and really knowing these definitions is going to help you on the creogs and trying to like think about a surgery and why you want to choose a certain antibiotic. So we talked about kind of the CDC vocab for defining SSI, superficial incisional infections, deep incisional infections or organ or deep space infections. And the bottom line or the pattern with this is that all of these are going to occur within 30 days post-op or within one year post-op if there's an implant that's left and then have signs and symptoms of infection basically. We also talked about surgical wound classifications. Again, that class one to class four system, clean, clean contaminated, contaminated, and then ultimately dirty or infected incisions. We also talked about risk factors for post-op infection at the patient level. So these are things that can be modified. So things like perioperative hyperglycemia, smoking, obesity, nutritional status, um, depth of subcutaneous tissue greater than three centimeters, other infections within the body, vaginal colonization, ASA status, immunodeficiency, and MRSA status. We talked a lot about preoperative and perioperative considerations for reducing surgical site infections that are practices that really should be implemented on the hospital level to prevent infections across the system. These things can include the treatment of remote infections that are not part of the primary surgical site, um, not shaving in favor of hair clipping if it needs to be done immediately preoperatively, preventing hyperglycemia, advising patients to shower or bathe with a full body soap, using an alcohol-based skin prep unless contraindicated, maintaining appropriate aseptic technique and using good surgical technique, minimizing OR traffic, and then for the special case of hysterectomy, considering preoperative screening for bacterial vaginosis. It's also important to know how much antibiotics to give and how often to redose an antibiotic. And things that would affect this would be a patient's weight. So knowing, for example, that obese patients may need a higher dose of antibiotics, the length of your procedure. So knowing the half-life of a drug and therefore maybe redosing the drug based off of the length of the procedure. And finally, redosing if you have a large blood loss. We talked a little about penicillin allergies as well, because in GYN surgery, we tend to use a lot of penicillins or cephalosporins. Again, ideally, in a preoperative setting, you're going to identify those patients and get them, per the American Academy of Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology, through skin testing, because over 90% of patients who claim penicillin allergy actually can use penicillins. Um, however, for those high-risk patients, again, we recommend it as an alternative to cephalosporins using a combination of clindamycin or flagyl along with estreonam or gentamicin. And finally, we went through a lot of GYN procedures and whether or not they should have antibiotic prophylaxis. For a better list and details on this information, go ahead and go on to ACOG to find Practice Bulletin 195. All right, so that does it. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee.
you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go onto iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on social media on Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee One, on Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, or if you love the show, come find us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee. You can also find a lot of our adjunct learning materials on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And if you have an idea for a future episode, again, thanks to Taylor DiGiulio at Beaumont for the episode idea here. Email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.